Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Will Bulsowitz is a gastroenterologist and internationally recognized gut health expert who wants to help you tap into the incredible healing power that lives inside your microbiome. His medical training has involved 16 years at America's elite institutions, including a bachelor's from Vanderbilt, a medical degree from Georgetown, a master of science in clinical investigation from Northwestern, where he also served as the chief medical resident. He's published more than 20 papers, presented more than 40 times at national meetings, and is the author of an awesome new book on gut health that's going to be published next year. For more gut health pointers, you can follow him on Instagram at theguthealthmd. Will, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to be here down under the the Manhattan Bridge. You got it, Dumbo. Yeah. Down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. Yep. The home of Instagram's most famous shot unfortunately on washington street um is that right it, it is one of them like I, we noticed I, i've lived here for 10 years and i noticed a dramatic uptick in the number of tourists around the time instagram started to get popular yeah that, that famous shot of the empire state building being framed under the manhattan bridge i'm gonna have to go out and do arches. that right after we're done it's here. not even it's not you, you should but it's like not that great of a shot really there's so many better shots in new york but for some reason, people love it. Yeah. So, anyway, to each his own. It's readily accessible. They so, know where to go for that. So, as I as I talk about, you know, influencers taking Instagram photos, it segues to my first question: this this idea of getting your information from doctors and not influencers, something that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, I really feel like this is important for people to start to think about because there hasn't been a lot of consciousness about curating the source of your information. And I think one of the issues that we're running into in 2019, really, you know, this is a 21st century theme, is that you see sort of tribalism, you see people fractioning off into their own ideas, and there's this confirmation bias that comes with that. And, you know, you, you, you see this in the health and wellness space, and you also see this very clearly in, you know, conversations that uh, happen in politics so, or like <laughs> when people are looking for their news, right? So if you have a rightward leaning, then you go to Fox News and you hear from Fox News what you want to hear. And if you have a leftward leaning, then you go to MSNBC or whatever it may be. And, you know, the problem is that now we start to take those those same concepts. Obviously, there's something about being human that we want to do that. We want to hear what we want to hear. And you, you, you take those same concepts and you start to apply it to human health. And that's problematic because at the end of the day, if you are going to the source to find what you want to hear, then you personally are defining the outcome. You are defining what the conversation is going to look like as opposed to what it should be, which is allowing science to provide a window into the way that that the world turns, the way that things function in this, you know, on our planet. Science is this window into the truth. And we need to use it for that. And if we bypass it, for example, if we say, okay, 
I want to prove that I can eat this way and you know improve type 2 diabetes. And then you go and you look for the study to prove that point. That's not the way that it works. You know, you're going to find that study. It exists out there somewhere. But there may be 10,000 studies that say otherwise. And so I, I think that at the end of the day, we need to really start to curate the best sources for information when it comes to human health, because this, this is our most powerful entity. The wealthy person who is sick would give anything to have their health back. And we need to be taking care of ourselves. And so I think that, you know, when it comes to Instagram, we need to stop listening to the 21 year old who has 1.2 million followers but has absolutely no knowledge when it comes to the way that the body functions or science or health. And we need to start listening to the person who maybe isn't quite as sexy in the way that they present information to you, but who is actually qualified to give you that information because they're more than likely going to give you the best information. Amen to that. <laughs> it's funny, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today and I said, it feels like Eastern and Western medicine are kind of at war with each other. And I likened it to the political climate where you have like far left and far right. And in my opinion, and I think a lot of people feel this way who love my muddy green, Eastern's not perfect. Western's not perfect, but there's a blend of both. That's really powerful. Yeah. And, well, and we, we don't know everything. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I, I truly honestly believe that we are touching the tip of the iceberg when we practice medicine. And there are a lot of things that the Western medical world has been resistant to. Um, you know, for example, even just the role that diet plays in human health. You know, it's we are just in the process now of the Western world, the Western medical world, allopathic medicine starting to accept that the food that you eat actually matters. And there have been all of these other groups that have been saying this forever, for the longest time. So I agree with you 100%. The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And there is truth. There is truth. There is biology. There is science. You know, um, if you throw an apple in the air, what's that apple going to do? It's going to fall to the ground because that's those are the laws of nature. <laughs> there are laws in nature, but the only person who knows the laws of nature without fail is God. And the rest of us are using our scientific tools to try to understand the laws of nature so that we can use that to better ourselves. So you mentioned Western and finally embracing nutrition and, and something that came to mind for me was the microbiome specifically. It's something it's scientifically based, it's billions of organisms, but there's a direct correlation to what you eat. And to me, that's a good example of East meets West with the microbiome and something. There's an interesting concept that I hear you're, you're a fan of and I want to hear more about is the idea of microbiome talking to each other. That I haven't heard. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about the microbiome talking to each other. Uh, well, you know, there are uh, taking a step back and talking about the microbiome for a moment for the listeners at home. I'm sure Mind Body Green listeners are highly educated on this topic, but yes, just in they case, are. but just in case, we're talking about this community of microorganisms that involves bacteria, fungi, potentially parasites, archaea, which are my personal favorite because they're single cellular organisms that have been on our planet for 3.8 billion years. There's only been oxygen for 2.5 billion years, so they were there for a very long time, and you find them in the most 
difficult of conditions, the bottom of the ocean in a rift vent or inside of a volcano, and yet they also take up residence inside of our colon. <laughs> um, and the last thing being viruses. And so we have this microbiome made up of these microorganisms, and there's 39 trillion of them are our best estimates right now, which clearly outnumbers the number of human cells that are in the body. And, um, you know, we like to pretend as if this, you know, we can look at like a strain, a single strain of bacteria that may live inside of your microbiome and try to say, well, what are the implications of that particular strain of bacteria? What is that actually going to do for you? But, you know, the problem is that we're trying to isolate this one particular bacteria in a complex community. And they're all talking to each other. And there's this thing that exists. So there's a couple of different ways we could take on this topic, by the way. There's this, there, there is this entity that exists called quorum sensing, which I think is fascinating. Because basically what it means is that the microbiome that lives regionally within your body, for example, in one segment of your colon, they're all talking to each other. And that communication with each other leads to differential outcomes in terms of the way that we process our food, which can lead to differential outcomes in terms of our health, because it's the processing, digestion, and you know, creation of potentially postbiotics that leads to downstream effects in terms of our health. That's one of the ways that there's communication, just locally within the body. But then how about communication between you and I? We're sitting here and we're having this conversation. And, you know, sitting here and talking to you from across the table is completely different than if you and I were to do this over Skype. Sure. And part of that, I truly believe, is it, like, why is it different? Because I can look you in the eye through Skype. And part of it may be this communication or this connection that occurs between bacteria where essentially we emit a microbiome cloud. It's around us. Everything around us is emitting a microbiome cloud. These plants that are here behind us are emitting a microbiome cloud. And there's interactions that are occurring as a result of us and our space. And we know, for example, there are studies where you look at communities where people live together. And you, what you find is as people move in together, for example, you, you go off to college, who you cohabitate with, you are more likely to have a microbiome similar to that person that you're cohabitating with, um, uh, you know, or the people that you live with at home. And so it's interesting to think about the connections that are occurring that we can't see, but that are probably there and occurring, you know, invisibly by the fraction of a second. So if, if you're listening, you're probably like, oh, no, do I, do I have to become a germophobe? <laughs> Microbiomes everywhere. Am I wiping? You know, what, what, what do we do with that information if it's everywhere? You know, we live, we're in New York City. People are taking the subway. I was, tra- I was just recently traveling, you know, airplane. I, we had a piece on my buddy Green, like the dirtiest things in hotel rooms. You think about the, the remote controls and just like life in general. So yeah. if I look at this, there's a part you can control. And that's, you know, the food you put in. And then there's the other part of everyday life. And with regards to the microbiome, what do we do? Well, first of all, to sort of address this topic of like cleanliness and hygiene and things of that variety, you know, you go back to the 19th century and we had this period of time for, you know, thousands of years. I mean, essentially the entirety of human history up to this point in the 19th century, where the top causes of death are infections. You know, in the the 1800s, that's what was killing us, were infections. And so um, we didn't really understand it. 
we didn't understand. There was no there was no understanding of bacteria up until sometime during the the nineteenth uh, century, where, for example, Louis Pasteur starts to do studies in France around the time of the American Civil War, and then we start to realize, holy cow, like these things, the plague, the plague that that killed wiped out thirty five percent of Europe. Those were bacteria, because um, up to that point, they thought it was like this eerie mist that was just moving in. And so that changed our perspective. And we as humans, what we are good at is innovation to try to address problems that we see. And so as we enter into the 20th century, we, we realize now that bacteria are causing the top causes of death throughout the world. And we start to innovate ways to protect ourselves. And so you look at all levels of human life now the way that we live and you think about what's in our water for example the sterilization of our water i'm not claiming that's a bad thing that was a good thing that protected Mm -hmm. us but do we need do we need chlorine in our water when we drink it or can we remove it before we drink it Um, or you think about you know um, the cleanliness of our food and the what is a preservative a preservative is something that keeps bacteria out right um, you think about the way that we uh, address health issues, and there was the discovery of penicillin, which was less than 100 years ago. And that was a dramatic achievement in terms of human health. One of the biggest leaps in terms of human life expectancy occurred as a result of that. So anytime you have something that's that, that's that powerful and that's protecting people, we have a tendency to overutilize it. And now we've taken it too far, and we're giving people antibiotics when they don't need it. Right. And so there's, I think that there's, a, the, the point from my perspective is that there is a natural balance that exists and the balance, the natural balance that exists is not us trying to hyper sterilize everything like my big fat Greek wedding with Windex just squirting it <laughs> everywhere. Um, you know, I think that there's, there needs to be the acceptance that, um, that there is a balance and that we don't need to be hyper sterile, that we don't need to necessarily, you know, be uh, wiping our hands with um, Purell and things of that variety, and that that bacteria are actually our friends. I think that's the bottom line: is that bacteria are actually our friends. They've been a part of human history from the very beginning. They're a part of human history now, and if we continue to be on this war path of trying to wipe them out and destroy them, there's going to be consequences, and we're starting to see those consequences now with the emergence of autoimmune disease and some of the other health problems that are occurring. So what are your, if you were to create a list of like, okay, and I you know, want to make sweeping generalizations, but if you had to make some generalizations in terms of things that are generally good for microbiome in terms of food, nutrition, and then like the environment lifestyle piece, what are some of those things you would feel comfortable saying that everyone should probably do? Well, I think that the... Um the reality is that many of the people who are in the health and wellness space are saying derivations of the same thing, right? <laughs> and, and when you go and you look at the science of what's emerging in terms of the microbiome, in many cases, you actually see confirmation of that. And so, for example, um, almost regardless of what diet you adhere to, almost every single one of them says we should get rid of processed foods. And that's because there are 10,000 additives that have been developed, most of which didn't exist 100 years ago. And they're a part of our diet. We can talk in more detail about some of these things that are out there, and they can be kind of scary, to be honest with you. They're a part of our diet because they've been approved by the Food and Drug Administration as GRAS, generally recognized as safe. 
and they get in there and then we they all mix up together and we don't know what's doing what in many cases so i mean from my perspective i think that the minimization i mean ideal elimination of highly refined processed foods is good for all of us and mm-hmm. it's definitely certainly good for your microbiome and when we eliminate you know when it comes to nutrition it's always about substitutions so what what are you replacing it with and we we know from our studies that what is powerful in terms of influence in the microbiome and and protecting us and building a strong gut is fiber but not fiber in the sense of hey go buy that supplement and take that supplement i do think that there can be benefits to to the use of of fiber supplements but more so the fiber in our diet and if you look there is to me a wild fiber deficiency that exists in our country and most of the industrial world 97% of Americans are not getting the minimal amount of fiber that's recommended to them, which is 25 grams for women and 37 grams for men. Most 97% of Americans are not hitting that mark. The average is 15 grams for women and 17 for men. And um, so to me, that's extremely low hanging fruit because fiber is critical in terms of the microbiome. It feeds the healthy bacteria. They multiply, they thrive. And then what they do is they actually pay us back they pay us back because what they do is they take fiber and they transform it into something called short-chain fatty acids. Butyrate, acetate, propionate. And these short-chain fatty acids are then released right there in the colon and fix things. Like we talk about leaky gut. Mm-hmm. If you want to fix leaky gut, to me, leaky gut is three steps. There's three parts to leaky gut that need to be discussed for people at home to understand what leaky gut is all about. It's not just leakiness. There's a little bit more to it than that. It's damage to the bacteria. It's a loss of balance of the bacteria that live, that live inside of you. Not enough good guys, too many bad guys, loss of diversity. And when that happens, it leads to breakdown of the tight junctions between the cells that line your colon, leading to increased intestinal permeability. This increased intestinal permeability allows this loss of balance of the bacteria where the bad guys are now able to release something called bacterial endotoxin. And bacterial endotoxin, if you want to summarize what is bacterial endotoxin, in one word, it's, it's inflammation. And we see bacterial endotoxin showing up as one of the components of human disease throughout the entire body. So when we talk about that three-step process, loss of balance within the bacteria, not enough, not enough good guys, too many bad guys, loss of diversity, Number two, intestinal permeability, increased intestinal permeability. Number three, increased release of bacterial endotoxin. You talk about those three steps. All three of those steps are addressed right there in the gut by short-chain fatty acids. They change the balance of the bacteria. They empower the good ones. They suppress the bad ones. They actually fix increased intestinal permeability and correct the tight junctions. And by doing that, they reduce the release of bacterial endotoxin. So to me, you know, we want to talk about healing guts. To me, this is the conversation that we need to have, which is that we are wildly deficient in fiber. And it's, again, not about just going out there and picking up a fiber supplement. I'm talking about going out there and changing your diet to get more fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, and nuts in diversity. I was going to ask you, so if we're going to recreate the food pyramid live here on the podcast, you know, what's what's at the bottom of your food pyramid and what are your favorite specific sources of fiber? Well, so to me, it's actually more about a concept, which is the 
the emphasis and focus on plant-based diversity. It's about getting as many different types of these entities, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, as many different varieties and types into your diet as humanly possible. And part of the reason why I say that is that every single one of those things contains fiber. But fiber is not fiber. Fiber is not all the same. There literally are no estimates of the number of different types of fiber that exist in nature. There's, there's got to be at least millions of them. And because every single one of these plants that we talk about has their own unique different types of fiber, and every single one of those is going to feed the healthy bacteria in a different way in your microbiome. Each, every single plant is going to support a different unique community. And this is why as you ramp up the diversity within your diet, what that leads to is a direct correlation with an increase in the diversity of your microbiome. And that is a marker of gut health. And there, there is... So it's not just celery juice. No, it's not just <laughs> celery juice. If you like the celery juice, you can have your celery juice. But please eat a diversity of plants in addition to your celery juice. And, you know, there was a study that was done by Rob Knight, who's at the University of California, San Diego. And this is an ongoing project. People can look this up. It's called the American Gut Project. And what this is, is the largest study to date to allow us to correlate lifestyle habits and choices with changes in someone's microbiome. Because people who do this, it's, they call it citizen scientist, where basically people choose to enroll themselves. They provide a stool specimen so their microbiome can be analyzed. And they fill out a survey. And people who are listening to this podcast, you can do it too. And so using this information from more than 11,000 people, they're able to ask a question which us uh, you know, medical doctors um, and other healthcare pr practitioners have been, have been wondering, what is the number one determinant of a healthy gut microbiome? What is the number one predictor? And what they found in this study coming out clear cut was the diversity of plants in your diet. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. <laughs> Michael Pollan. Yeah. And he's right. And you know, this, this doesn't need to be complicated. Like our diets, we, we make them complicated. They don't need to be. So you also mentioned whole grains, which can be controversial. I'm curious in terms of whole grains, how do you think about the good ones, the bad ones? How do you classify whole grains? Well, I, I think first of all, one thing that we can all agree on quite simply is that when we talk about grains or we're talking about gluten and, you know, there, I, I feel like there needs to be a refined conversation in terms of how we categorize these because to talk about highly processed, refined grains mm -hmm. in the same sentence or to lump them in the same pile with minimally processed or unprocessed grains is not fair. They're not the same. Sure. So, and from my perspective, take those ref highly refined grains and toss them out. I think we can all agree on that. But the question is, whole grains, um, and you know, if you want to get into gluten, that's a whole another bear and a whole another beast to talk about. But with whole grains, when we look at the microbiome, you know, people say there's inflammation, but when they actually study it, actually there's a decline in CRP, which is an inflammatory marker. Um, and it, so what is it about whole grains that people are having a reaction to? Because there definitely are people having gas bloating and some sort of reaction to, to the consumption of these foods. And the answer to that question is, believe it or not, it is not the gluten necessarily. It is actually a component of the grain, 
which is called a fructan. Fructans are one of the FODMAPs. People have heard of the low FODMAP diet. And so that is actually for someone particularly who has damage to their microbiome or has underlying irritable bowel syndrome, that's what's going to cause that feeling that they get, gas, bloating, you know, GI distress, changes in their bowel habits. And it's not necessarily inflammation. And what's interesting is that when we eliminate grains of any variety, we see that there is a loss of diversity within the microbiome. And it makes sense to me because when we do categorical elimination of foods, plant foods that feed the microbiome in a unique way, then we should expect that all of the bacteria that thrive off the consumption of those foods are going to fall off. And so that's, that's the issue with the categorical elimination of grains from my perspective is that we know that this leads to basically contraction of the microbiome. When you, when you reduce the diversity within your diet, you reduce the diversity within your microbiome, and that can lead to down, downstream consequences. We also know that grains are a great source of fiber, and in a country where 97% of us are not getting enough, that's problematic. So what's your favorite grain? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I don't know if it counts because it's almost like a pseudo grain, but my wife and I love to, we make a lot of quinoa dishes sure. at home. Sure. But I think the other issue too is that it's not that I'm sitting here and advocating for more bread per se, right? <laughs> it's more that I don't want to see people categorically eliminating grains and kind of, from my perspective, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And it's this larger idea, which you alluded to in the opening, is we're in this like, all or nothing landscape, good versus bad, uh, tribalism, which leads me to one of my next questions, two things, which, you know, there's, there's very strong science for certain conditions. Uh, and a lot of people believe in, but it seems like it's just it, both are really taking off the mainstream intermittent fasting and keto. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I guess I would break them down each in their own um, spot, which is, you know, first of all, intermittent fasting. I, I do, I do definitely believe that there are health benefits to intermittent fasting. Um, clearly associated with uh, weight loss, with lower cholesterol, with improvement of insulin resistance, and there are some some preliminary studies that suggest improvement of the gut microbiome. Um, in a way, what you are doing. Is, and by the way, I should mention this, taking a step back, when I say intermittent fasting, there's different ways that you can approach this. I was going to say, how do you define it yeah. too? And what do you say? Yeah. So, so for me, what I'm, what I'm talking about right now is actually more time-restricted eating, which is having a window of time where you rest your gut during the day um, and that you do this as a lifestyle, that you do this on a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to sporadically choosing a date. Like intermittent fasting could also be, you know, five to two, which is during your week, you'll have two days where you will do a complete water fast or something of that variety or a juice fast, um, however you choose to do it. So I do believe that there are health benefits to, to time-restricted eating, which is what I want to sort of focus on. Um, and for me personally, I, I've done it myself and I actually find it to be quite useful. The things that I would encourage the listeners of this podcast to think about as they do, as they um, engage in time-restricted eating is I think it's really important that we anchor this to our circadian rhythms. So it's not just about the period of time that you choose to take a break. It's actually, okay, what time are you going to start eating and what time are you going to stop eating? 
because our body has a circadian rhythm. In fact, everything in nature, everything that's alive in nature, including plants, have circadian rhythms. All Everything does, all life. And so our microbiome similarly has a circadian rhythm. If you go and you fly uh, halfway around the world, you're going to be jet lagged. And I would argue the reason why you're jet lagged is because you have thrown off your circadian rhythm, including in your gut microbiome. And so it's looking to adjust and it takes a few days for it to adjust to the new changes. So when it comes to to circadian rhythm and time-restricted eating, the key is this, early dinner. I think that's the key. You know, to me, having dinner at nine o'clock at night, I mean, I realize there's some people that they have to do that for whatever reason, but having dinner at nine o'clock at night and then taking, you know, whatever it may be, whether it's a 12, 14 or 16 hour fast is not the same as having an early dinner and allowing your body time to rest that starts prior to the time that you go to bed at night. What's the gap? Um, I think four hours is ideal. Yeah. So, and, and then, you know, from my perspective, I, I feel like a good place for people to start is at 12 hours because that's pretty darn easy to do. Mm-hmm. And then you expand from there. But I would, I would encourage anyone who's really pushing this going to 16 or to 18 hours of fasting, I would really encourage them to say, look, you know, the, the benefits that you're going to get as you push yourself further and further down this line it's diminishing returns. Right. And let's look for other opportunities to improve our health that aren't just pushing ourselves super hard on, the, on time-restricted it's, it's eating. It's a form of stress, I think potentially. Can, I think you can take it too far, yeah. for sure. And, you know, so to me, it's like, well, what about sleep? You know, because sleep is free. And we <laughs> all need that. And we all need that. And there's, there's, there's no science to say that as we um, age that we need less sleep. That's, not, that's simply not true. We need sleep. It's just that we have more things standing in the way of sleep, and so we make excuses for why we don't, why, why we don't sleep. Right. But we need to make time for that. I think it's really critically important. Now, with regard to keto, you know, keto, keto is a dietary choice, and um, you know, obviously, the, the listeners of this podcast know exactly what keto is, which is a low-carb, high-fat diet. And before I even get into it, let me just say that any person who cares about their health and is motivated to make changes in their lifestyle, I don't care who you are and what you choose, you are a well-intentioned person and I celebrate you. You know what I mean? And I have love for those people who want to engage in a better diet to yield a better health result. And I, I think that keto, we, we really don't have enough time on, the, on this podcast <laughs> to get into all the details of it. But what I would say to you is sort of two critical points from my perspective which is that first and foremost, not all carbohydrates are bad. Um, again, it comes back to having a more granular detail where we're getting in, where we're getting into, you know, the nuance of what is a carbohydrate. Um, yes, like highly refined processed carbohydrates, meaning sugar and corn starch uh, and uh, high fructose, high fructose corn syrup. syrup. Those things are bad. There's no question about that. But fiber which 97% of Americans are deficient in, is a complex carbohydrate. And if we're throwing all carbs out, then again, from my perspective, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So now can we go and do a modified keto where we introduce some limited, high-fiber, low-sugar foods? Is that going to really be enough to sustain us? Well, we, we don't have any data from a microbiome perspective 
to support that. To me, clearly, that would be better than the alternative, which is no plants at all, which is the carnivore diet. So you don't just eat bacon all day? (laughs) You could. uh, And then you better have a good cardiologist. (laughs) Because you might feel fine for a short period of time, but in the long run, that's not going to help you. Sure. And it's, I, I, I also don't think it's going to help your gut. Um, you know, we, we have actual data. There, there was a study which was not intentioned to actually look at this specifically, but there, there was a study that was published in Nature, the top journal in the entire planet, um, in 2014 by Lawrence David, who is at Duke. And, you know, really, this was a concept study. They picked two polar opposite diets, and they wanted to show us that changes in your diet will affect your microbiome very, very quickly. And so what they did is they took a population of people and they subjected them to either an entirely plant-based diet for five days or an entirely animal-based diet, meat, dairy, eggs, and that's it, no plants, for five days, which is essentially the carnivore diet. And what they found during this, this study is that in just five days, I mean, literally less than 24 hours, dramatic changes in your microbiome. This was one of the studies that showed us that if you change your diet, you will change your gut almost immediately. But the other thing that happened is when someone consumes a completely plant-based diet, you see these anti-inflammatory bacteria, you see increase in short-chain fatty acids, they're eating a high-fiber diet, and so you are supporting a healthy gut microbiome. But then just five days of this alternative diet, the completely animal-based diet with no plant products whatsoever, And within just five days, you see loss of diversity. You see decrease of the uh, anti-inflammatory bacteria, the ones that produce short-chain fatty acids. You're not feeding them, so they start to die. You see an increase of the inflammatory bacteria. One specific bacteria that shows up in just five days is something called Bilophila wadsworthia. Bilophila wadsworthia, there are plenty of studies showing an, an association between Bilophila wadsworthia and inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. These people in five days didn't get inflammatory bowel disease. That's, that would be ridiculous. But what they did do is in just five days, they were already laying the foundation for what ultimately could lead to inflammatory bowel disease. And if you take one of these people and you give them certain genetic profile, that's what's going to happen. They're going to get inflammatory bowel disease. So, so I guess the point from my perspective is that we have all this data, some of the studies that we've been talking about during this podcast that show us that it's the diversity of plants within your diet that are critical. And when we take diets and we, and we exclude categorically groups, you know, for example, fruit with the keto diet. So you may include vegetables in doing some sort of modified keto, but then you exclude the fruit because you perceive that the sugar in the fruit must be bad. Right. Yet, the studies show us that people that consume fruit lose weight. And also by excluding them, you are categorically eliminating and restricting your microbiome. You have a loss of diversity of plants. You're moving in the opposite direction that I think people need to move. So from my perspective, I don't obviously love that diet. I think that we can do better. I also recognize that every single person's on a personal health journey and trying to find what works best for them. So in your opinion, what role, if any, do animal products do fit, you know, fish, meat, poultry, what role do they play in a healthy microbiome? And I know it differs for 
the individual, but sure. I mean, so to me, this sold on the plants, fruits, veggies is like the base of any good diet. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Yeah. Well, and I think that what you come to is, so first of all, our diet needs to be radically different than the standard American diet, yes. right? Which is 10% fruits and vegetables and 65% processed foods. And, you know, you're asking me, so what role do animal products play in digestive health? Yeah. And um, the answer from my perspective is, and I'm waiting for a study to make this clear to me, I, I can't find one that shows me that we need animal products for gut health or for our microbiome. That it, I can't find a study that shows me that it confers an advantage to us from a health perspective. Now, I understand that for some people, they feel better when they consume those foods. Mm -hmm. I understand that. And I think that, you know, taking a step back, I don't think we also, I also don't think we need to live in a world of being absolute about everything where you need to be exactly this or exactly that. You have the right to make your own dietary choices. You also have the right to say that, hey, I like this food and I want this to be a part of my life. And that's perfectly fine. And the question is, what's the right way to do it? Mm -hmm. Right. So the average American eats 225 pounds of meat per year. Are we overdoing it? We're eating more than anyone in the world. <laughs> I would argue we're overdoing it. Yep. And I think that you take a look, uh, a look at the blue zones and it's not that the blue zones are the perfect study, but I think it's information. I think it's interesting when you put this into the context of what all the other research studies are showing us. And you see these populations from around the world, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, uh, Caria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and I think most importantly for us, being American, it's Loma Linda, California, mm -hmm. because they live in our country. They have the same healthcare system that we do. I know people who work at the hospital in Loma Linda, and they have the same food supply that we do. They don't have a special you know, group of farmers <laughs> that are providing them. They might have a unique farmer's market, but I think the point from my perspective is those people living in our country with the same healthcare system and the same food supply are living 10 to 12 years longer than the average American. And it's health, it's health as they age that matters as well. Sure. Um, people are getting sick and they're not enjoying those last years. And that's one of the big things that I think we need to improve. So these five blue zones, 90% plant-based. Yep. And my book coming out i mean it's coming out a year from now so i'm not trying to get pre-orders or something but i'll have you back <laughs> but that's where i'm going with my book is that i think that we should be all striving to be predominantly plant-based and i really think that it's about progress more so than hey you need to be this and if you're not this you're not good enough right it's not that it's where are you right now no matter who you are where are you right now and what can we do better to make progress towards this ultimate goal and to me that ultimate goal is optimizing plant-based diversity but also leaving a little bit of wiggle room i like ice cream right so now i'm i, I get going to my next question i get not a moo i get not a moo but I it's love not, not a moo my favorite austin based brand the the mint chip is phenomenal yeah. like you can't tell the difference if you're here you have to check out ample hills so, but, uh, it, but you also can't tell me that not a moo is actually good for me, right? It, it's not actually. Well, we could, we could tell you, but you know, you know better. <laughs> so I guess the point from my perspective is there, there does need to be, I think some wiggle room for you to be human and to have some food that you well, enjoy. Well, that's the other thing that should not go unnoticed in the blue zones is this idea of, you know, drinking wine, being with family, celebrating life. There's this idea of feeling good. It's the whole, well, and it's the whole package. And, you know, social is like be, being social, yeah, connecting with people. 
Is it are really you eating ice cream with your with, with a, amongst a group of friends, or are you eating ice cream in your bed at night with Netflix? <laughs> hiding on. with Netflix on. Yeah, exactly. Difference. There's a big difference, and you know, I, to me, like the most depressing thing is. Like technology is a conversation that we all need to like really have with ourselves and with others because I mean you get on the bus and everyone's on their phone right you go out to dinner and to me the saddest thing is when you see a family (laughs) and they're each on their phone and they're not talking to each other yeah so you mentioned ice cream so we have to go there triolos am I am I pronouncing this right yeah you did yeah so so let's talk about this oh gosh this is crazy. Um, and, you know, everything that I'm about to tell you is based upon an article that was published in Nature, again, the top scientific journal from around the world. I mean, if if we find a cure for cancer, it's this is the journal that's going to publish it next year. And so just published last year in Nature. Um, and essentially, you know, I think back, let me, I guess, just frame the story a little bit. I was in med school in the early 2000s. And when I was in med school, there was this bacterial infection called Clostridium difficile, C. diff. C. diff. And C. diff, when I was in med school, wasn't that big of a deal, but we did see it. It's not, it's not that we never saw it, but w- where we did see it was specifically in the hospital, generally an elderly woman who was receiving antibiotics, specifically, usually, clindamycin. Um, and so at that time, we would see it. We would treat it with, we would treat it with another antibiotic, and it would get better and you move on. And fast forward just a few years, I'm early in my practice, um, and it's around 2010. I'm now a gastroenterology fellow. I'm in my specialty training. And I'm, I'm now seeing people showing up who have never been in the hospital. They're young. They're in their 20s. Um, they have not been on antibiotics, and they're coming in from the community, and they have these infections. And by the way, the infection causes, uh, we call it colitis. So it's an infection of the colon, um, with profuse, massive, explosive diarrhea to the point that you can't control it. 24 hours a day, you can't sleep. Many times blood in the stool. And if it progresses, it can not only lead to a place where you pass the point of no return and your colon actually needs to be removed surgically. I, I've sent patients to surgery with this. But it can also lead to death. There was a period of time where in the U.S., 30,000 people were dying per year from this infection. And so the story of the rapid evolution of this bacteria was terrifying because we were living it in real life, uh, you know, in our medical practices, seeing these people that 10 years earlier, it was not that virulent. It was not that aggressive. It was easy for us to treat, and it wasn't that common. Now, all of a sudden, around 2010, it's common. It's showing up in new populations. And it's also becoming impossible for us to treat to the point that we became desperate. We had very few choices. I had a ton of patients that I was treating with antibiotics for months at a time. And if I tried to withdraw the antibiotic, the bacteria C. diff would come back so that we were stuck. So what do you do? And in uh, in times of desperation, sometimes you do desperate things. We as a medical community turned to something that I never thought we would do. We started doing fecal transplant. And that is exactly for the listeners at home, what you think it is Uh that is taking the poop from another human and transferring it into the sick person. But it's super exciting and promising. It's actually super exciting and promising. I think that there's a lot of potential there and we can talk about that in more detail in a moment. But the point from my perspective is that what's crazy 
is you can take these people that may need their colon removed, that have a life-threatening infection, that will not respond to antibiotics, and you do a fecal transplant, and almost 100% of the time, they are better within a day or two. And it doesn't come back. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing that it's that simple, that it's just taking the poop of another person and transferring it into the sick person, and you can fix the issue. So, which gets us into some uh, interesting conversations, but the question, the real question that we had is why? Why? Why didn't this happen? Why were people, why was there this, this explosion of this infection? And so this study that just came out in 2018 in Nature, essentially what they did is using an animal model. They showed us that trehalos, when given to mice, causes a rapid shift in C. diff to create more virulent strains. And what's fascinating about that is you can actually track the specific strains that they're talking about. So, because they can look to see, based upon microbiology, when did these strains start to show up? And what they found they in this study then went on to correlate these strains showing up in the United States, in Europe, and in Canada. And what they found is that these strains were showing up in the U.S. around 2001, in in Europe around 2002, and in Canada around 2006, which happens to be the exact same year in each of those cases that trehalose enters into our food supply because it's approved by the regulatory bodies within those individual places. And so, for example, in the United States, it was approved by the Food and Drug Administration to be a part of our food supply under this exception that we've been talking about called GRAS, generally recognized as safe. The problem is that there are no longitudinal studies on humans to see what these things that we add to our food supply do. Um, They're just added under the assumption that, hey, it's not going to kill you within a week or two (laughs) weeks. Um, And then we don't know. We don't really know what's going to happen once it enters into the food supply. And here's just one example of an additive in our food that, by the way, is found commonly in ice cream because it's a sweetener and it's very temperature stable. So for ice cream, you need something that can fluctuate with the temperature, including going into the freezer and then coming out of the freezer. And trehalose is good for that. So it's been in ice cream supply and it's still, you can buy it by the kilogram off of Amazon, but I Oof. would not recommend that. Not a move safe. Uh, not a move is safe. Yeah. All right. Yeah, good. we're good. I almost, I thought you were like, Walter Longo was on here a long time ago and he's like, I'm not so sure about avocados. I'm like, what? Don't say that. <laughs> that would be mind crippling. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, like what's a, what's a day in the life? How do you eat? How do I eat? Yeah. Um, well, it's actually quite simple. So, and I, I have some advantages for me because I work as a medical doctor and I have a hospital that has a great salad bar. <laughs> so and that's the truth. And they give me free access to it. So I probably shouldn't be talking about that because they may take it away after they hear how much, how, how, how big my salads are. But you know, I, I, I tend to not eat breakfast most, most days. If I do eat breakfast, then most of the time it's going to be something on the spectrum of oatmeal with a ton of berries or a smoothie, like a huge smoothie um, that doesn't have to be that complicated. You know, bananas, berries, greens, uh, flax, chia, something along those lines. So that's where I am from a breakfast perspective. I generally, most days when I'm working, I'm not eating until lunchtime. And then my lunchtime meal is usually a massive salad with as much plant-based diversity as the salad bar will provide. 
I, seriously, I mean, literally every single plant that is not mixed with something that's not a plant, every single plant, I just grab. I just put it in there. Okay. Um, different different quantities, right? So there's some things that I get more or less of based upon or what the dark leafy are. greens. So, well, I mean, the beauty of the dark leafy greens is that it's nutrition for free because it has almost no calories and it has tons of tons of nutrients. So that's the beauty of those guys. But no, I just get a little bit of everything, honestly. Um, and that's my lunch. And then my wife will cook dinner. And, you know, we are, we're a normal family. So despite what I may appear like on Instagram, I am like, you know, we eat normal meals. And what that means is we have a rotation. And sometimes it's simple stuff. Sometimes, truly, sometimes it's literally whole wheat pasta with a sauce that we will mix in some, some vegetables into the sauce. And that's our dinner. And, you know, we'll, we'll um, put some nutritional yeast over the top. It could be that simple. But we also have meals where it's like we make it. My, my wife makes a great multi-bean chili, you know, and that will last you multiple times during the week. Um, we'll take quinoa and stir fry up some veggies, throw that together. So it's not. You're in Charleston. You ever do barbecue? Uh, if I go to barbecue, I usually get the sides for me personally. But, you know, for people who like barbecue, there well, is a great barbecue scene. Do you eat meat, scene. personally? I don't anymore. Okay. So I used to be, uh, that's, it's an interesting story from my perspective. Because I was in Chicago at Northwestern. I was the chief resident at Northwestern. My job was to take people out for dinner. That's what I did for a year. <laughs> and um, uh, lots of Chicago chop houses, a lot of Chicago, Chicago steakhouses. Yeah. And, I, and I, back then, this was uh, 2010, I loved a ribeye. Loved it, especially with a glass of red wine. And what's what happened for me is, so first of all, my health started to get away from me. My cholesterol was high. My blood pressure was high. I weighed 235 pounds. I can hide the weight pretty well because I'm 6'4", but I had gained a lot of weight. Sure. And so fast forward a couple of years, I'm seeing some of these studies coming out. I meet my wife, by the way, who eats radically different than me. I'd never been around someone who ate anything on the vegetarian spectrum before. And I see the way that she eats, and I see that she eats in abundance without restriction. She's not holding back, and yet maintains a very healthy weight. And there I am on the flip side, and I'm struggling to get my weight to where I want it to be. I, I'm, I'm younger than I am right now. I mean, obviously, I was in my early 30s. I was working out like a madman because I was single. So I was in the gym working out, no exaggeration, 30 to 60 minutes a day. And then I would either jump on the treadmill for a five to 10 K where I would jump in the pool for 50 to hundred laps. Wow. I was doing all that <laughs> and I could put on muscle mass, but I couldn't lose the weight that right. I wanted to lose. And that's because I was eating trash and I know I, I was a celebrated medical doctor. I won the top award in my residency program. Um, but yet I had no awareness of the power of food in terms of what was going on with my own body. And so as I met my wife, I started to, I saw the way that she ate, I started to make some small changes. And it was just like substituting a smoothie for a hot dog for dinner, you know, instead of the hot dog, do a smoothie. And I started with those small changes. I felt better. I noticed changes in my body. I started to see these studies, like the one from 2014 that I referenced before that was published in Nature. And so I'm seeing these studies coming out and that motivated me to start to make changes in my own life. And the, the benefits that I got from it, I brought into the clinic and I gave it to my patients as well. My patients are thriving. I'm thriving. I get back to my high school weight, which is 190 pounds. I went down 45 pounds and this is without exercise. 
I stopped exercising because I got very busy and I had a, a young daughter. And so now fast forward, here we are 2019, I'm encroaching on 40 years old, I'm in the best shape of my life. I feel like I look younger than I did in my early 30s, I honestly do. I, I could show you the side-by-side -side photos to support that. And I'm working out way less. I work out 60 to 90 minutes total per week, but I'm getting more gains because my nutrition is optimized and right. so is my lifestyle. I love it. So. Last question for you, and I think it's a confusing one for a lot of people, and again, probably a gener generalization, but we'll try for it. How do you go about picking a probiotic? Well, uh, let so me... So many different strains, problems, solutions, you know, this is good for everybody, yeah. lots of different studies. How do you, what's your general advice there? I, let me say this, I'll, I'll lead by saying that I'm very optimistic about the future of probiotics but I think it's gonna be done radically different than the way that we're currently doing it. It's gonna be fecal transplants. Well, fecal transplant <laughs> is a supercharged, you're exactly right, and that's a supercharged probiotic. That's, yeah. that's the ultimate probiotic, right? But if you were to scale it back, what, what I would do in the perfect world, and someone's gonna take this idea and they're gonna make a bazillion dollars off of it, is I would actually analyze your microbiome and I would have a way to identify the strengths and weaknesses within your personal microbiome, and then I would offer a personalized solution. Now, I will tell you that there are companies out there telling you that they could do this right now, but they haven't done the, the appropriate studies to demonstrate that they can actually achieve a health benefit by doing that. So we live in this place in 2019 where probiotics definitely benefit some people. There is no question about that. I see it in my clinic all the time, all the time. But the, the problem is that we're currently using a technique of flinging mud against a wall mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going to work. If you try one probiotic, and it does not work, it doesn't mean that categorically all probiotics are going to fail you. What we ultimately need is we need some sort of probiotic that's going to actually fit with your personal unique microbiome. I mean, there's literally no one on the planet that has the same microbiome as you, and there's right. no one on the planet that's the same as me. We need one that's gonna fit with your personal microbiome to give you a health benefit. And so, so right now we're just kind of trying different things. Now there's some basic themes that we know are true. We, we see that, generally speaking, more strains tends to be better. We see that higher colony counts tends to be better. But these are just general themes. It's not always universally true. And also targeted, like targeted strains for targeted problems. That's exactly right. It's that, not just like, here's everything for everyone. Like if you're facing this issue, these are the strains that th there's some strong science supporting this may help you. 100%. And so so basically, you know, there is no such thing as the best probiotic. Correct. What there is, is there's the best probiotic for you, and we have to use the available evidence to try to inform the choices of which ones we choose. And, and, and you know, part of the problem is this is a huge, huge industry. Yeah. And the marketing and the hype are out in front of the science. And what we need is we need more science to help us to make smarter choices. Amen to that. We'll close on that note. Thank you so much. It's Thanks. Fun. Thanks, Will. Thanks.